This is W-O-W-D-L-P Tacoma Park. Good morning. This is Sheila Blake, and I'm here with Tom Sinakis, and this is the Artist Experience Radio Show. As artists, we have a unique mission to bring to you, our listeners, the pleasure of learning about art, the brightening, the awareness, and the enrichment, and more than anything, its relevance to our daily lives. We live in a city of great museums. We have an embarrassment of riches, and even though You can listen to us and look at our images posted on our Artist Experience Facebook page. There's nothing like being in the presence of art. The paint, the stone, the metal, the size, the scale. The encounter with the artists who made this for us to experience. We hope that you'll use our show as a way of investigating art and as a springboard for your encounter with the real thing. There was a rich lady lived over the sea And she was an island queen Her daughter lived off in the new country With an ocean of water between With an ocean of water between Now the old lady's pockets were filled with gold But never contented was she So she ordered her daughter to pay her a tax Of three pence a pound on the tea Of three pence a pound on the tea Oh mother, dear mother, the daughter replied I'll not do the thing that you ask For I'm willing to pay a fair price on the tea But never a three penny tax but never a three-penny tax. Good morning. Today, we're going to take you to one of D.C.'s best-kept secrets, Tudor Place. Tudor Place is located at 1644 31st Street Northwest and not far from Wisconsin Avenue. It's tucked in a neighborhood and hard to find. This national treasure and D.C. treasure has a suggested donation admissions fee. With COVID and all, I suggest you go online and get tickets at tutorplace.org. It's always curious how one finds these hidden treasures by chance. Many years ago, I would drive from my studio in D.C. and shoot across town from northeast to get to Upper Georgetown when I taught at the Corcoran campus there. I would see like this wooded area as it was approaching Wisconsin Avenue northwest, and I saw these small, tasteful signs labeled Tudor Place. Behind the fences was this thick foliage, and I could hardly see through, and beyond the overgrown 
brush facing north was this wonderful mansion. It seemed mysterious and I wanted to investigate. So one day I decided to turn down the side street on 31st Street Northwest and I came onto the entrance. It looked a, a kind of bit run down and unkempt. And most of us are familiar with Georgetown and Upper Georgetown sidewalks. They're hazardous, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. you know, walking yeah. on those old sidewalks. The old brick-laid sidewalks seem treacherous, and I seem saying, man, man this sidewalk's a mess. <laughs> but thank- thankfully, it's a lot better now. I decided to check out this place. I mean, when I entered the threshold gate, it was like I was thrown into the time tunnel. This federal-style huge mansion was nestled on this 5.5-acre plot, which, which we call Georgetown. Some people call it Upper Georgetown. And they used to call it way back when Georgetown Heights. They're all very classy names, you have to admit. But And then... These gardens were beautifully manicured, possibly in a colonial English style. I ventured into the home, and there was an admissions desk. And I was thrown back in time, looking around me, and then I said to the person, can I bring my class from the Corcoran to paint here? And the woman said, of course. There was a small fee, but I thought it would be great, and the students would love it at doing plein air painting, painting outside on a Sunday or Saturday. Then I asked, can I take a tour? Again, the lady said, of course. And I scheduled a day and went on the tour. I remember going on a tour of James Monroe's place, Ash Lorne, in Charlottesville, Virginia, many, many years ago. Although Ash Lorne is much bigger than Tudor Place, it's kind of like this kind of place where you really go back in time. You know, you kind of feel curious and kind of creepy curious and like a good colonial style. You know, you, you kind of like it. Mm. There's a lot of history in these walls and, you know, possibly the bedrooms too, you know. Yeah. And, and I really like that kind of thing about a, a historical place. And, and Sheila, have, have you been to a place like that? And, and what about that vibe at Tudor Place? Well, I'm going to start by saying that I've always been completely disinterested in museum oh. homes. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, with those roped off rooms, I once described those roped off rooms as my mother's mind. <laughs> All these places <laughs> that you just can't go. <laughs> so, oh, man. <laughs> so even in the museums, I always cynically thought that they accepted those donations of tchotchkes and pottery and, <laughs> and plates to display so that they'd get a big donation later. But once I was in Sedona, Arizona with my good friend Claire, we went there to bike, but I don't recommend it. Just look at the pictures of those hills, and there are spikes from the cactuses that puncture your tires, even if you're finally on a downhill run. So we were running out of things to do when we walked over to the local museum. What we found there had nothing to do with the red rocks and the crystals and the New Age trappings of what is supposed to be a spiritual place. The museum was the real deal. It was in one of the original buildings of Sedona, and it had stuff. It was like a great window into the past. Sedona was named for the postmaster's wife because they needed a name for the post office. And... uh. 
Her mother had made up her name because she thought it sounded pretty. So in the museum, you could see that before that thick layer of tourism, the industry of spas and wellness businesses, it was a place for farmers and ranchers and miners. The life was revealed through those things. So Tudor Place is that, but a hundred times better or more. It was home to six generations of Martha Washington's descendants from 1805 to 1983, and home also to the enslaved workers and servants who lived and worked there. It's a model of federal period architecture in the nation's capital, and there are over, get this, 18,000 objects. Wow. 18,000. They're not all on display. Tudor Place sits on five and a half acres of lawns and gardens in the heart of Georgetown overlooking the Potomac. By a happy coincidence, I became acquainted with Rob DeHart, who is a new curator at Tudor Place, and I was able to get an enhanced understanding of the rich stories that can be learned there. First, here's the origin of the house. Martha Park Custis Peter received $8,000 from her step-grandfather, George Washington, and she and her husband, Thomas Peter, used the money to purchase the property that would become Tudor Place. I think about 1805, they moved into the house that was already there. Later, from Martha Washington's will, Martha Peter inherited 90 enslaved people, some of whom were sold to build the mansion. In 1815, they hired the architect, Dr. William Thornton, who also designed the United States Capitol to design Tudor Place. So, this historic home was home to six generations of the Peter family from 1805 to 1984. It was host to the Marquis de Lafayette and Civil War generals and other Washington luminaries of the highest levels. And they stayed overnight. (laughs) (laughs) They stayed over. And in those 179 years while they lived there, they amassed this collection of American and European decorative arts, including over 100 treasured items from the household of George and Martha Washington. Tudor Place today is a well-preserved example of the upper-class life in the 19th century, and it looks almost as though the Peters just went out for a walk which is a little weird. I want to stress that that house stayed in the family all those years, which is very unusual. It's not a wealth like those that were amassed in the Gilded Age by the Mellons and the Morgans and Frick. It's more human-scale wealth. The Peter family were Federalists and Anglophiles. The house was in the Federalist style, which was neoclassical, and neoclassical was popular in Britain. Plain fronts with stucco, looking a bit to me like European villas. The stucco was over brick, American style. Well, yeah, I mean, I think think this whole idea of this generational, you know, existence in this one place is really exciting that it never really ventured outside of the family which is very rare and and uh, you know the, the the home is gorgeous uh yeah it's it's uh 
you know, Federalist, which comes from neoclassical, and it's it's all beautiful. Well, the Peter family made their money from tobacco and land, and they were a family of generations of hoarders. So what's on display, which is already a lot, is about 5% of the actual collection. And it's layered. So it's when they display it, it's not confined to one period, but tripping back and forth through time. In the study, there's a couple of telephones from the 1950s, and a candle, and an electric lamp, and an electric fan, and a terrarium, but I couldn't go into the room to see if they still had toads in it. But, <laughs> but oh boy, the best thing is it isn't prissy. It seems... They have so many, many things to display, and every cabinet, shelf, wall is full of teacups and dishes and paintings. It looked like pipes and cigars was smoking the place up. Years have passed, and the smell is gone. Armistead Peter was a pretty good painter, actually. He also collected art. If you look up the stairs, you can see his easel. And what a mishmash of English floral and Greek revival, an etched set of wine glasses with Greek young men happily cavorting around the glasses. There's always the surprise of rugs and patterns in China. You want to go everywhere, but the rooms are roped off, and it's easy to set off signals. But no one seems to care because I kept setting them off. It's, <laughs> it's looking into 250 years of history all at once. And we're talking about Tudor Place, a 5.5-acre estate nestled in Upper Georgetown. Well, Tudor Place has a very handsome website, and I suggest you go at it at tudorplace.org. When you peruse the website, the information there opens up an entire array of possibilities for one to enjoy. Check out that website. I'm not an American history buff. But for, for people that love history, and specifically American history or D.C. history, it's a really sweet place to go. For lovers of the garden and botanists, it's a hidden treasure. For people interested in genealogy, this offers an interesting array of resources. For art and architecture folks, this is truly a place for study uh, and a place to be creative. If you want to get away from the hustle and bustle of that part of D.C. or D.C. in general, you can actually find a place to meditate and do yoga there. I mean, it's so much for so many different kind of people. Here is a quirky experience. I, coincidentally, I have a love for Middle Eastern textiles. And wherever I go, I look at textiles, whether it's rugs or embroideries and how they're displayed in an historical context. Well, I remember that Tudor place when I went many years ago, curiously had some very interesting and older carpets. That excited me to see. It's just an idiosyncrasy, but that makes a place inviting and interesting. Another example of that is like I also enjoy woodworking and furniture. And there are so many lovely period pieces from so many different periods. Even the woodwork of the door is beautiful. Yeah. It looks like they had some of the original wallpaper reproduced. It's beautiful. The rooms are fairly small, surprisingly, and they're painted gorgeous, rich colors. My favorite, yellow, and a dull wine, and then a dull, rich green. So the transitions from room to room aren't jarring at all. They're harmonious transitions, especially the kitchen is a little bit small. And how many cast iron pans do you really need? 
They they have about 12. (laughs) But by the Civil War, the family money was running out. Britannia, remember we said they were Anglophiles? She was the 10th child of Thomas and Martha Peter. And she opened the house to union officers and was reimbursed with money so that the house wouldn't be taken for a hospital. And that ensured the survival of the estate. She kept George Washington's Revolutionary War Camp stool, Martha Washington's Rosewood Tea Table, and after that, the family successfully married people with money, so they never had to sell the house, and in fact, that's why it became a museum. The clutter seems so authentic. It seems like the family lived in that house for generation after generation and just got more stuff and really never really replaced the old stuff. (laughs) So so it, it feels like it's living. I've never been in a museum house that had that feeling. I have to say, yeah, it's it's a very uh, much more comfortable feeling yes, being, being yes. in Tudor Place. Well, <clears throat> one of the things about Tudor Place and on the website, there's a lot of upcoming programs for young and old, members and non-members and educators like me. This hidden gem truly offers some very wonderful surprises. For example, there's an, a program coming up on September 21st between... 6.30 and 8 o'clock uh, p.m. titled Free Landmark Lecture, Women and Slavery in Georgetown. It's by Elsa Mendoza, the Assistant Curator of Georgetown Sl- Slavery Archive at Georgetown University. And she will speak about women and slavery at Georgetown and will examine women's unique roles in the history of slavery in Georgetown and its namesake university. Well, you know, through the uh, these stories about women that were, and, and slavery that we're hearing in D.C. now is a really hot topic, not only for D.C., but regionally and nationally, and it's part of the national conversation. Another presentation is titled Tudor Night, Sanitary Solutions, Hygiene in the Peter Household, which was on September 9th from 6.30 p.m. to 7.15. And this was a members-only event, but, I mean, that's okay. So you can go, maybe you want to go on the website and become a member. Go to tutorplace.org for more information. In this lecture, discover, you know, they talked about personal hygiene, which has evolved through records and artifacts that was left behind by the, the Peter family in their 200-year ownership of Tudor Place. And that new, the new curator, Rob DeHart, it, it talked about uh, this exciting... Um, sanitary solutions which is actually really big in the news anyway with covid so we could could take you back i mean so it's like uh they didn't have the handy wipes that we have now but rob the hearts uh you know talked about you know self-activating portable water closets old toothbrushes soap and you know even some of the more modern bathroom fixtures that were purchased by the Peters in 1914. So you know Tudor Place just offers so many more things than just the beautiful grounds in the house. Well, I'm fairly sure that many of our listeners are discomfited by opulence, by that sort of display, by of opulence by the wealthy. I was in a book group. And when my turn came to choose the book for the next month, I chose Anna Karenina, Tolstoy's magnificent work. 
and one of the members said she had no interest in reading about rich Russian people. But this, although the family is American royalty, their collections are not jewels. They're useful. They're functional household objects. It's just that there are 18,000 of them. (laughs) (laughs) And this is America, the good and the bad. There's a simpler aesthetic. Inside the house on the first floor, originally there was a drawing room, a saloon, and a dining room. The drawing room is the party room. The saloon is pronounced in the English way instead of the salon of the French. The room on the right was the dining room because what is now the dining room was originally the master bedroom because Martha Peter was constantly pregnant and the servants were close by. The nursery was right next door, hard up against the servants' area, like the British upstairs-downstairs sets and the labeled bells on the wall. Upstairs, there were bedrooms for all those children, eight bedrooms. The nursery was changed in the late 1800s into the study and the dining room into the parlor. The parlor was a little more domestic than the drawing room. The outside of the mansion is gorgeous. It was There was the original square house on the property before the Peter family, and when they hired the architect, William Thornton, he kept that building as one of the symmetrical wings and had a central building with a tall, simple portico overlooking the south lawn so that you could see clear to the Potomac. It's perfectly proportioned. It's built of brick and then stuccoed over and painted a golden tan with white trim on the columns and the windows. And inside, when you arrive at that center hall, you could see through the glass doors to the lawn below. It's elegant for sure, but it's also friendly. And in the back, there are the kitchen gardens, flower gardens, herb gardens, a small building that used to be a smokehouse, and then that was used to raise pigeons to cook, I guess, to cook. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Well, you, this is the kind of place where, you know, you, you imagine Georgetown in the colonial, colonial days. You know, you kind of close your eyes and imagine that. And, you know, Tudor Place uh, is on a hill facing basically on the south side, facing Roslyn, Virginia. And in those days, there was probably nothing impeding the view of the Potomac. You probably got glimpses of the Potomac. And of course, most of us know that the landscape of Georgetown was just a swampy, low-lying area. I mean, um, and, uh, you know, they had the docks on uh, on the, on the uh, Washington side then. And uh, so you're, you're, you're looking down from the sprawling mansion, you come out of the saloon, uh, and you look south, and it's just a beautiful, must have been an incredible view. Well, now, of course, we have a lot of condos in the way and other things, but, you know, the, such is life, right? <laughs> well, the thing about uh, Tudor Place, it's a, it's a living history in, in, cont- in continuity, and that is so special. People lived here for centuries uh, until the 1980s, so I would like to call it like almost a living museum. And in the sense that, you know, the gardens and, and the grounds and the house, they evolved 
Things got in disrepair at times. Improvements were made, depending on who lived there and when. You know, the taste changed. Things were altered and replaced with the times. And Sheila suggests maybe they could have been replaced more. But, you know, they kept on adding stuff. And, you know, this happened over different centuries. But, all that being said, it's maintained a coziness and a lived-in feeling. And since the last time I was there, there's been so many improvements to everything. The signage and the labels, uh, the layout, it's so much clearer. And of course, with COVID, there's a logical flow to the place where you have to go in certain directions. And uh, it's so professionally displayed over the and organized in, since the 12 years I've been there. The house seems to have made improvements on the inside and the outside. So um, the fact that real people live there to me is, is really comforting. And yes, they were wealthy. They were the upper echelon of DC society since the colonial days. But two, the place is not ostentation, uh, ostentatious or pretentious, not to me in the least. Me too. Me too. So if you just joined us, you're listening to the Artist Experience Radio Program here at WOWD Tacoma Radio 94.3 FM. Today, we're continuing our series on the art of the garden right here on WOWD Tacoma Radio. We have had several programs about this topic, and we continue today on a visit to Tudor Place in D.C. in Upper Georgetown. This lovely estate is a great place to visit, and it has lovely gardens and a great house with a very rich history. Brothers, have you seen the master with a mustache on his face? Going along the road sometime this morning like I want to leave this place. He's seen the smoke way up the river where the Lincoln gunboats lay. He took his hat and left very sudden and a speck he's run away. The master run, ha ha, and we will stay, ho ho. It must be now that kingdom's coming in the year of Jubilee. He's six foot one way, two foot the other, and he weighed three hundred pound. His coat's so big, he couldn't pay the tailor, and it won't go halfway around. He drills so much, they call him captain, and he gets so dreadful tan. I speck he try and fool them Yankees, for to think he's contraband. The master and ha-ha, and we will stay ho-ho. It must be now that kingdom's coming in the year of Jubilee. Welcome back. Now we're going to talk about slavery. So, after all this time, we Americans are beginning to come clean about slavery, the horrible injustice of our past and our present. Historians are reckoning and reporting just how important the labor of enslaved people were to our new and burgeoning economy. It's with their labor that this country was built. With their labor, Tudor Place was built. Tudor Place has made it part of their mission to research, unearth, and honor the enslaved people who built and toiled there, to find their descendants and record their family stories, their oral histories. Tudor Place 
has been doing this historical and anthropological work for years. And this year, Rob DeHart, the new curator, was brought in from the State Museum of Tennessee with an agreement that Tudor Place would be recontextualized. Before Rob, the public focus has been on the decorative arts, and with good reason, but now it's enlightening to look at the life that was lived there with a broader scope. In the drawing room, there's a large punch bowl, a gift from George Washington, imported from China back then, brought over in a sailing ship, and it has a scene of a Chinese rice plantation on the outside and a hunting scene in the bowl. Think about how this bowl was passed down from George Washington, and it was handled by the domestics. They were surely warned of consequences of carelessness if you break this. They carried it, filled it, served from it, and washed it afterwards, and it is still here. Some descendants of the enslaved workers wanted their ancestors' stories brought out, and some don't. There's some distrust and a lot of pain, but the curators are seeking their help to document the past because the only documents of the time are receipts and sales, or like in the book that Britannia kept. So much of the history is oral history, but Britannia Peter kept notes on some of these people, their names, what work they did, and there are records of these people being bought and sold. Authenticating history is hard work, but now we're aware that enslaved people built the White House and the U.S. Capitol, and that Georgetown University was built by slaves, and some were buried beneath the campus. And it's known that slaves would have done the hard work, like sawing logs and moving stones, as well as working at quarries to get the raw materials that most probably built the initial building of the Washington Monument. And they were also responsible for more skilled labor, like plastering and painting and carpentry. The bronze woman that's on top of the U.S. Capitol Dome, which is called the Statue of Freedom, was made by an enslaved artist named Philip Reed. Although most of the slave wages went to their owners, he was paid a dollar and 25 cents a day because no one else had the skill to make a bronze statue out of a plaster cast. By the time the statue was set on the Capitol in 1863, Reed was a free man. The Smithsonian Castle was built from red sandstone that was quarried by workers owned by Martha Washington, although it's possible that they didn't work on the actual building. These things are really hard to authenticate. Wall Street was named after an actual wall, and there was a huge slave market on Wall Street, one of the largest in the country. Trinity Church in Lower Manhattan was built by rented slaves, and their owners were paid for their work. And Faneuil Hall in Boston, Fort Sumter in South Carolina, and Harvard Law School, the main building at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and Mount Vernon and Mount Pelier, such beautiful landmarks that have lasted over time, both for their craftsmanship and their beauty. In 1838, Jesuit priests, who were the founders of Georgetown University, used the money from the sale of enslaved people, which today is worth about $3.3 million, to pay off debts and build its campus. 
to offset some of the damage since 2016, preferential education is offered to the descendants of the enslaved people who had been sold. At least one descendant, Melisande Short Collum, ended up attending the university. She said that the buildings on campus were so beautiful, and she was in awe that her family had built them. Well, thank you so much for that, Sheila. Uh, it's really uh, eye-opening. Uh, to learn all the, the facts about the use of uh, slaves and servants, uh, not only throughout the United States, but also here at Tudor Place. Well, this this historical evolution from these wealthy colonial landowners entrepreneurs is really kind of astounding. And the Peter family, we have to also understand, in with their wealth, they had the base camp at Tudor Place. I mean, they had tracts of working farms and livestock everywhere else where they incorporated, I'm sure, slaves and indentured servants. Uh, and that was in, in Seneca, Maryland, for instance, was a place that they had farms. So these people were also connected to Mount Vernon, Virginia, over the years. And, of course, they had slaves. So... The, two, the, the, the Peter family was pretty self-sufficient when it came to their necessities. And, of course, they had the great, great connections with the European man, uh, mainland like England and France. And, of course, that was through the help of many slaves and servants. And, and this is all well-documented at Tudor Place. And, you know, we're trying to reconcile this in the currency of Georgetown and uh, D.C. and also Georgetown University on the slave labor and their histories. But interestingly enough, and this is something I wanted to mention, you know, the other uh, peoples that were working besides the slaves, uh, African-American peoples, were Irish immigrants who were laborers and servants there as well. And I want to bring this up because this is also very common uh, in the post-colonial period, and especially after the Irish potato famine. Uh, so, you know, they had this pool of poor people that they used to build and keep Tudor Place alive and many other places. And uh, especially during the Civil War when the poor Irish immigrants you know, they worked as servants in these uh, in particularly domestic situations. And, of course, you know, that has something to do with the relationship between Ireland and England. And then that came to the States. And, of course, uh, it was a very, uh, very kind of sad period of, of American history when it also came to, uh, to from European history that how the Irish were used in these menial uh, jobs. So the evolution of the slave quarters uh, is very interesting uh, in Tudor Place as well. And we're going to talk about that as, as later. But, you know, they were there in the thick of it. And I think um, I really appreciate you um, bringing that up, Sheila. And uh, if you've just joined us, you're listening to the Artist Experience Radio Program here at WOWD Tacoma Radio 94.3. Today we're continuing our series of the Art of the Garden, and it's right here at WOWD Tacoma Radio. And we're talking about Tudor Place, a 5.5-acre estate nestled in Upper Georgetown. And... Uh, it's really a place that we really want uh, our, our listeners to visit. It's, it's an absolutely great, great place. And uh, one of the things that I've got to say that um, in this whole concept of this living museum, I think one of the things about Tudor Place, and 
is the details. And, and it makes for a, very, a lot of historical treasures that you can enjoy. I talked about being a visual artist and, you know, I'm the son of a carpenter and a woodworker. And I, I enjoyed just looking at the moldings. The moldings are due to place. Now, that's not something you, you don't see. Like, the crown and cornice moldings throughout the house are lovely. Nowadays, handcraft per, uh, personship of moldings doesn't go into houses. They're not putting these ornate moldings in new houses, so many people are not familiar with. The other thing that I loved about Tudor Place is the ceiling medallions. Yes, ceiling medallions are really beautiful, and, of course, they come in... They have a very classical look, and they, they're in the Federalist style, and they also in Greek Revival, but they're really beautiful, and that really adds a little pizzazz to a room, mm -hmm. a ceiling medallion. Mm -hmm. And uh, the doors and the finishes and the wood grains on the sliding doors of the entering and uh, leaving the rooms are actually beautiful. And the grains of the wood on the furniture, these are things that you could look for if that's your interest because they're really beautiful. And frames. Let's talk about frames, Sheila. Uh, the frames were gorgeous throughout the house and the sconces and the mirrors and the gilded classical look. Some of them had leaves of laurel and plant forms. Yes. Very, very beautiful. So this is stuff that really kind of, as they say, floats my boat. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh -huh. And so, and then let's talk about the bookshelves. You alluded to that. I mean, these were very literate people. And, you know, they had tons of books from great authors and great collections. Do we really buy collections of books anymore? No, we don't. We don't buy the classics of Plato or all the books that James Fenimore Cooper, um, uh, for those of us that maybe never read James Fenimore Cooper, you know, The Last of the Mohicans, so on and so forth, this famous book, among others. And so you see these gilded, lettered-bound book jackets, you know, uh, and the leather, leather-bound, I meant to say, in the study, in the parlor, and, uh, and they're everywhere. And it's so refreshing to see books beautifully bound in a presentation. And also, they're, beautifully to, they're beautiful to read. Have we forgotten this in the 21st century? Have we forgot about the beauty of books oh. as a concept? And there, it's really clear that Tudor Place, they found that very important. And it's all in the details. And yes, there's a lot of artifacts, 18,000 plus, and you don't see all 18,000. But it's, it's these artifacts of a living museum that make it great and interesting. Well... Don't get me started about books. <laughs> it's something that I think this is when I, I'm reminded that I'm getting old. Um, so Thomas and Martha Peter, like many of the property owners in the 19th century Georgetown, they exploited the knowledge, the labor, and the bodies of African Americans by participating in the system of slavery. When she married Martha Peter... Martha Washington's granddaughter inherited a group of enslaved individuals from the Custis Dower slave lineage. A 1799 Mount Vernon census by George Washington listed 153 Custis Dower slaves. 
When Martha Washington died in 1802, those individuals were divided equally among Martha's grandchildren, with Thomas and Martha Peter receiving 43 enslaved people. Although George Washington gave instructions in his will that following Martha's death, those he held in bondage should be emancipated, he was not able to voluntarily free the slaves because he did not own them. So while some enslaved individuals were held in bondage at Tudor Place, most of them were forced to live and work on Thomas Peter's other agricultural properties in Montgomery County, Maryland, and Northeast D.C. In 1820, the U.S. Census revealed that there were three adult men, three adult women, eight children enslaved on the Tudor Place property. A family tradition holds that the small frame building located in the northeast corner of the Tudor Place property was used as a dwelling for some of these people. This portion of the property was sold in 1854 when the estate was reduced in size. Britannia W. Peter Kennan's writings provide valuable information about the individuals the Peters enslaved, including several enslaved laborers who lived out, meaning they resided off the Tudor Place property. Though enslaved individuals had personal lives separate and entirely unknown to their enslavers, labor records are often the only information that's left. There's also an additional research funded by the D.C. Humanities Council that sheds light on human ownership and trade by the Peter family. Tudor Place staff continues to research the full stories of those the Peters enslaved here. Most of the information comes from the property records of the Custis, Peter, and Washington families. Those individuals were shared among the Custis, Peter, and Washington families during different life events. Many of the Custis Dower slaves came from Hope Park, the Fairfax County plantation of Martha Custis, Peter's mother and stepfather, George Washington. Martha Washington enslaved other individuals at Mount Vernon. Many of these people married and had children with those who were legally enslaved by George Washington. A 17th century Virginia law declared that a child assumed the same status as its mother. Therefore, any child born to a woman with Custis Dower slave status also became a Custis Dower slave, regardless of the status of the father. Well, Sheila, I can't thank you enough for these these incredible details about the uh, the history uh, of uh, enslaved people at Tudor Place, and it's it kind of uh, is just astounding um, of what went on. Uh, and certainly, I didn't was not familiar with that uh, in my previous visits to Tudor Place. Well, we're going to fast forward a little, and we're going to talk a little about the last descendants at Tudor Place, and that was Armistead Peter III. And as Sheila mentioned, not only as uh, the heir of Tudor Place, but he was also a very gifted artist. And he was trained in Paris in 1921, and he and his family moved there for his studies in art. And, uh, And he had a son that was born there in Paris as well. But he was a very, very interesting individual, uh, besides his art talents, he was in the Naval Reserve and uh, in World War I and in World War II, he was deeply involved in the war effort uh, 
and he was on the Joint Intelligence Committee of the Joint Chiefs of Staffs in Washington, working in the Asian campaign or the Asian arena of the war. He began painting more frequently following his return from the Pacific, and he had several exhibitions in the Washington area. His, his paintings are very well done. There's pastels, there's oils, and there's some really, um, I found, remarkable watercolors. Um, and the house is filled with all this interesting art, as Sheila had mentioned, in a variety of mediums and also from a variety of cultures. And I'm sure that comes from their travels, and they were well-traveled. Etchings of prints of many types. There are architectural examples. There's maps. And and they and they fill, you know, these rooms in in, in a lovely way. Um, I think uh, on so many ways, uh, this is such an ed educational place. You could learn so much about so much material that's visual, and and I'm a very visual learner, so I think that's really really fun. Now, another thing, we got to get into those gardens. <laughs> And I was a biology major in college, and I had a really strong love of zoology and botany. And there's so much flora to absorb here, and it's all great in Tudor Place. When you leave the house, there's a smaller inviting kitchen garden. It's right off the kitchen door. Well, so many of us cook with herbs for health and flavor, and you see them and you recognize them right outside the kitchen door. To me, that's really cool. And, you know, you just go out there and you pick you know, your herb. And then there was a, a pen or a coop for chickens and pigeons, or as they call them, squab. It's much more... I didn't it, realize it, they were the same thing. Thanks yeah, I, well, yes, it's a fancy, <laughs> tastier word, right, yeah, than uh -huh. pigeon. <laughs> anyway, the expansive grounds that are now in the 5.5 acres was once bigger, as Sheila just mentioned, so there was more chance for more gardens, and there's benches and alcoves to sit and meditate and soak in this array of beauty. And these gardens are maintained, and uh, and I think that's really nice because uh, when I brought my students there at the Corcoran years ago to paint, and they were really lovely. The students absolutely loved that experience. And then there's the box knot garden, and that impressed me when I first came to Tudor Place. And this formal layout of heirloom roses and geometric beds, defined by boxwood hedge, they, it dates from the uh, earliest part of, of the home. And um, its renewal and restoration uh, began, and it was, uh, again, it was completed in 2011. Um, it had been in and out of repair, and the Peters family had helpers and slaves to do the garden work on the grounds as we've just mentioned. But the Peters were also enthusiastic gardeners themselves. And these gardens were copied from the gardens of the estate in Avenel, Virginia. It took a while to do some research about that. Avenel is a place near Bedford and Roanoke, Virginia. And it's um, it was an estate for very famous people uh, of infamous and, and famous uh, you know, notoriety, such as Robert E. Lee, and Edgar Allan Poe. So they got inspired from these other plantation places. The gardens, like all the gardens, of course, you know how, how hard it is to maintain a garden. You know, you got to keep on it. And they've been 
in and out of repair. They were in bad shape during the Civil War, which makes sense. But it's a great hideaway back there in the gardens. And many of the trees and plants are labeled, and I really like that when I go to a garden. They're really simple, tasteful labels. And they're, but they're not manicured to ridiculous perfection. That I kind of like. Uh -huh. You know, it, it's like it's, it's natural. And so, of course, you can't touch the plants or pick the plants and that kind of stuff. And uh, I certainly suggest you don't do that. But the gardens are simply lovely. <laughs> and it's September, which is the most beautiful time of the year because there's kind of like a flare uh, a flaring up before the end of summer and the gardens are a little wild and it's be beautiful like things have grown to their maximum there were extensive borders of white hostas that were in bloom they're usually i think of hostas blooming in june but these tall white flowers against the dark green foliage they were just gorgeous yeah, you know, it was so weird to see them. Yeah, I thought how, uh, hostas had passed their time. Well, one of the things about the gar uh, this this wonderful place and the gardens is you find nestled on, on, on the uh, west side of the property, you find um, this, these garages that were evolved, I think, partly from slave quarters, and then they became stables, and then there were garages, and now it's a modern garage service area, they called it. And that's an interesting architectural development on the property. So there's a lot of records about where people lived and the servants, and, and also Tudor Place is interesting for auto history buffs and the evolution of the garage with that 1919 Pierce Arrow. What a car. Uh, I don't know if I, I, I misread this in the case, uh, display case, but the receipt for the sale of the car looked like it was $6,000. And I don't know if I was wrong. I don't know if anybody else saw that, but it was worth every penny. It was an art piece, and it looked like a really fun ride. Well, by the time that Armistice Peter II had arrived to adulthood, the family had recovered all their money. They were very strategic in who they married. And oh, so, yeah. Yeah, so they were able to keep that money coming in. And so he had this beautiful car built. And it's really a work of art in itself. The bumper is like an art deco wonder of simplicity and function. The and strong, too. Strong. <laughs> the chassis for the Roadster was built by the Pierce Arrow Motor Company. Armistead Peter II had a part in designing the body, which was custom-made by the Brewster Company of New York. His first car was a 1916 Pierce Arrow two-passenger runabout, and it had skidded on an icy road in the winter and broke a wooden spoke. So Armistice's next car, not wanting his next car to be vulnerable, asked Brewster to put in these new Bud Michelin disc wheels, which were used on General Pershing's car in World War I. I mean, nothing but the best. Incredible. Those metal discs were the first to be installed on a civilian car in the Washington area. 
you know, so I mean, this is what I love about this. It's like you can go to Tudor Place, and if you're a call buff, you could just sit in front of that car for hours. Oh my God! I mean, and study it. It's like it's a work of art, as you said. Mm. Well, for my closing comment, I'm going to quote the historian James Holland. He said, one of the things that I tell people all the time is that American history is in your attic. Holland said, the truth is in our records, our grandparents' papers, family Bibles, and old family books. A lot of the history of our country is in those books. And that's where we're going to find out in the future more about the past. And Tudor Place is a treasure house for research. Oh, absolutely. Well, sharing about this hidden gen uh, at Tudor Place in northwest uh, D.C. Uh, in the Georgetown neighborhood of Wisconsin Avenue and 31st Street and Q has been so much fun. This place is great. You can hear that in, in Sheila's enthusiasm. I, have, I, have been, I had been there, and it has some great new charm, and it was so great revisiting. Um, and we hope you will, too. And again, check out their great we- uh, website at tutorplace.org. If you've just joined us, we were talking about Tudor Place, this lovely estate, which is a great place to visit right here. We've been talking at the Artist Experience Radio Program at WOWD Tacoma Radio 94.3. And again, you know, you got a piece of D.C. history, uh, American history, and so much uh, about uh, this family and descendants of, of um, uh, Martha and George Washington. And we, we invite you to visit. And thanks for listening. Sh- Sheila, what are we going to do about this next show? <laughs> are we going to go back to Tudor Place and look at more of those 18,000 objects? I, I'm telling you, I could actually do that. Especially <laughs> knowing Rob DeHart now and the things that he had to say about Tudor Place was incredibly enlightening to me. So maybe we'll go back to Tudor Place or maybe we'll find another place. Okay, very good. It's going to be a tough, tough uh, thing to beat. Experience art and the visual and everything you do. And thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom over me. And before I'd be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave. Go home to my Lord and be free. No more moaning, no more moaning, no. Moaning over me, and before I'll be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave. Go home to my Lord and be free. Oh, freedom. Oh, 
that land Come go with me to that land Go with me to that land